Welcome, everyone, to our seventh episode of the Godcast on Buddhism. Uh, we, we are joined here by uh, Reverend Koyama, who is a, a local Buddhist leader uh, in, in our town. And uh, we will now, uh, we're super grateful that he's here, so we will now be, you know, uh, since he's obviously an expert of Buddhism and on Eastern uh, religion, so-called Eastern religion, that's one of the questions we'll delve into, is definitely not uh, one of our specialties. We wanted to reach out and have, and give his takes on uh, Eastern religion, the Dharmic religions, and, and Buddhism. So that being said, uh, uh, Mr. Uh, Reverend Koyama, I, I, we noticed through studying uh, through the study of religion that the origin story is really generally the story of the founder of a religion. For example, in Christianity, the nativity and the gospels sets off the whole thing. Um, in Islam, it's the first revelations of Muhammad that sets off the, the whole uh, course of Islam. So we were wondering what would be a good summary of the life of uh, Siddhartha Gautama? Uh, what would be uh, what would that entail? Sure. So, uh, well, uh, first, I'd like to thank you uh, both for including me in today's podcast. Um, uh, I, I, I am very, uh, I'm actually very happy that a lot of you, uh, that a lot of you are interested in this and are actually uh, reaching outside of, uh, reaching out and, um, and, uh, uh, and you've reached out to me. So without further ado, let's get started on this. Um, so I would say that the one of the uh, biggest uh, stories about this, or the um, I would say that uh, how this all started, would probably be with the birth of Siddhartha Gautama, um, and uh, that would be the birth in Lumbini's garden um, uh, in what is to, what is today Nepal. And uh, you know, a lot of people think, oh, you know, Buddha was born in India, but it really was. I mean, maybe I think it was like, you know, they, we, they didn't have the same type of borders at the time. So where today, uh, where Nepal is today, that's where Siddhartha Gautama was born. Um, the story goes that he. Um, I'm going to give you a very brief uh, uh, summary of the Buddha's life and. Um, and basically what ended up happening was, was that uh, Queen Maya and King Suradana, who uh, were the kings and queen at the time, uh, really wanted to have a child. And then um, in a dream, uh, Queen Maya uh, uh, saw or envisioned a white elephant entering, uh, entering into her womb. And then uh, it, it, was, and it wasn't long after that, that uh, on a pilgrimage back to her home, uh, in Lumbini Garden, uh, she gave birth to uh, Prince Siddhartha uh, from her right, and it's and the legend says he, uh, he was born from her right side. And um, after that, he took seven steps and uh, pointed to the heaven and the earth and said, "I alone am the exalted one." And uh, from that point on, it was um, you know the Prince Siddhartha was born, and then it was very interesting because. Um, uh, he uh, lost his mother. Uh, it wasn't soon after his birth that Queen Maya passed away. Um, so anyways, uh, Prince Siddhartha um, is going to grow up, right? And, uh, and uh, before, before, actually, sorry, I, I skipped an important part. Before he was, uh, when he was still an infant and before his mother passed away, they actually were visited by a great seer named Asita. And Asita... Uh, looked at the Buddha and and or looked at Prince Siddhartha and then addressed the parents and said, "Your son is either going to be the greatest conqueror of the world and conquer the whole world and um, and you know basically become its you know king, or he's going to be a religiously awakened one and uh, save the world." So um, naturally, uh, King Suradana you know didn't want his son to go the religious route, he, you know, he wanted his son to be like him, a king and the conqueror of the world. And uh, so because of that, he, uh, he uh, sheltered his son in the walls of the palace and, um, and, uh, uh, and uh, he grew up with nothing but luxury. And uh, jump ahead to when he's, uh, you know, in his 20s, uh, Prince Siddhartha finally, uh, you know, finally leaves the palace gates and he goes out four times, and uh, and each time uh, he uh, sees something. He sees four. You could almost call these like I guess 
if we're going to use Christian words like four revelations, or there were four sites that 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 he that that caused him to you know figure something out. And the first one that he saw he, uh, was an old man, and he asked his attendant, you know, what's wrong with him? And he says, there's nothing wrong with him. He's just old. And uh, the Prince Siddhartha becomes scared, and he goes, oh my gosh, am I going to get old too? And his attendant says, unfortunately, yes. He goes, everybody gets old. And then the second time he goes out, he sees this uh, other person who's sick. Uh, they're probably throwing up, and there's probably boils on their face, and it's it's not very pleasant to look at. And um, and uh, Prince Siddhartha asks his attendant, he goes, what's wrong with him? And, and he says, no, well, nothing's wrong. He's just sick. And, and then Prince Siddhartha goes, oh my gosh, am I going to get sick? Am I going to come down with sickness? And, and the attendant says, yes, even you will come down with sickness. And then the third time he sees a funeral happening. And uh, he goes, what's going on here? And he says this, and then his attendant says, this is death. And um, finally, uh, in Prince Siddhartha, this is what shocks Prince Siddhartha the most and says, am I going to die someday? And, and the attendant says, yes, unfortunately, even you, great prince, are not exempt from death. So, uh, and then the fourth time he goes out, he sees a mendicant or a renunciant, you could say. These are like, would look like holy people who are sitting in meditation. And he says, what's going on with this person? And uh, the um, and then the uh, attendant says, uh, this person is a renunciant, and they are out to find the seek. They're a seeker of truth. They're out to try and find the meaning of life, right? And so um, Siddhartha ponders this and ponders this, and finally decides to abandon his his palace, abandon his riches, abandon um, in, in a sense, like also leave his uh, his wife and child as well. And says, "I'm going to see. I'm going to become one of these seekers of truth." So Prince Siddhartha leaves the palace at nighttime without even saying goodbye to his relatives. And the reason why he does this is because he knows that if he wakes them up or if he says goodbye to them, he's not going to be able to leave. So he has to just, you know, cut the cord right there and just leave. So um, he goes into the he goes into the um, into the forest and he, uh, he joins these five under uh, these five other mendicants and. The, uh, this particular practice calls for great renouncing. So, um, so they're, you know, uh, they basically don't indulge in anything. They don't um, eat regular food. The, uh, if they need water, they have the dewdrops to drink from. Or if a bug dies in front of them, then they could eat that, perhaps. Uh, there's, um, there is a legend that... Uh, uh, Prince Siddhartha at the time of his great renunciation was only eating like one grain of rice per day. So um, finally, uh, it gets to the point where um, Siddhartha's starting to realize this extreme renunciation is not working because if I continue this, I'm going to die without becoming awakened. Um, then finally, a uh, uh, this uh, a woman walks by and she has this bowl of rice milk. And, um, and, and she actually offers some to Siddhartha and he willfully takes it and uh, the other five renunciants kind of cast him off and just say, oh, you, you messed up, you, you took food, you, you don't have any self-discipline, we renounce you. And so they left him. And then, but then Siddhartha realizes that, you know what, this is actually what we call the middle way. I, I went from extreme pleasure, right? Like being raised in this castle, being raised in, you know, being raised in this castle. And then I went to extreme renunciation and that didn't work either. I have to find somewhere in the middle. And so he, then he says, well, I'm going to sit under this spot, which happens to be a Bodhi tree. Uh, I'm going to sit under this Bodhi tree and I'm going to sit here until I renounce or until I, um, until I free myself of my of, of my uh, inner desires and my inner evil, you could say. And then the word for that is Mara, uh, M-A-R-A. Uh, yeah, the Mara, the, the devil king you could kind of personify. But in reality, what that is, is that, you know, it's his humanistic desires and ego. So um, finally, uh, he sits under the tree and then, uh, you know, you know, dedicates his uh, meditation practice 
to such that Mara tries and tries again to get him to move from that spot. Uh, he sends these beautiful dancing girls. He tries to send armies of you know uh, evil demons to try and scare him away, and none of it's working. And then um, uh, finally, uh, I uh, it, it, it's, deba it's debatable the amount of time he sat under the tree. Some say 49 days, some say seven days a week. So after a certain amount of time, uh, finally Siddhartha is awakened to the morning star, and he or to the early to the to the early morning star, and then uh, declares that he is now enlightened, and he touches the earth and says, "The earth is my witness." And um, and then from that point, he raises from his seat and then joins the five ascetics that, you know, renounced him before, and they noticed something was different about him. And then uh, they realized, okay, he actually has been awakened to a great spiritual awakening, and we're going, to, we're going to listen to him now. And that is considered to be the first turning of the Dharma wheel. And um, there he teaches the way of enlightenment. And, um, and then... Uh, and then he teaches for about 45 years and then finally he passes into what we call Padi Nirvana or the ultimate Nirvana when he dies and um, he says you know I may be gone you know I may not physically be here but the teachings are still here and those are the things that you need to hold on to those are the things that you need to use to seek the path of enlightenment so and that is in a nutshell sort of the origin story of Buddhism right there Wow, that is so that is so incredibly fascinating because we uh, for school we read a book uh, by uh, Herman Hesse. It was a 20th century novel. It's called Siddhar It's called Siddhartha, um, and it, it's just like what you said was was like a uh, was it was a much more detailed uh, version of that you had like the the part with Nepal to me is really fascinating. Um, I guess. Uh, yeah, because you know you don't normally think it's you know India. He comes from India. Maybe even he's born in China because it was obviously popular there and, and still is to this day. But like I didn't know he was born in Nepal. And there's another uh, cool thing too, um, which is you you mentioned like Nirvana and um, and you said Mara too. And what, what our our next question uh, for you was going to be um, what what are some of these uh, Buddhist and Dharmic terminology? Like what does Dharma mean? What does karma mean, samsara, nirvana, and moksha? Like, we can just take two at a time if that works with you. Wow, okay. Well, <laughs> how much time do you guys have? <laughs> yeah, we, we have, we have, uh, we have like, till the end of the day, so it's, it's pretty much... Uh, well, yeah. you know, um, well, it, again, you know, that's the thing. Um, these words are thrown around a lot now, and um, they're thrown around, and... Uh, you know, they, they are thrown around and they are used in everyday conversation now, which is very interesting. Karma, I've, I've heard karma being used a lot. Now, it's interesting because now, um, let's start with dharma. Okay, like dharma um, can mean uh, many things. Now, literally, literally speaking or literally translating, right? It just means the teaching or the truth right teaching or truth and then even in uh i think like in hindi or it's law right law the law and of course when we think of law right we're thinking well okay you know congress and when you write things into law and then when you sign things into law it becomes you know a law and you have to obey it right you know, but we're talking about you know um universal law right and so um and you know and and so dharma actually has a very very um uh, not a, a very simple translation, but a deep meaning. And in fact, actually, you know, Buddha, Dharma, and Sangha, right? You know, keep those three things in mind. These are what we call the three jewels or the three treasures, right? And when one becomes formally a Buddhist, uh, they actually uh, say, I take refuge in the Buddha. I take refuge in the great teacher who taught the way of enlightenment. I take refuge in the Dharma, the Dharma, the teachings that the teacher gave, right? And then I take refuge in the Sangha. And the Sangha is all of us, all of us uh, taking refuge in the Buddha, learning the Dharma, trying to live, the, trying to live the best that we can by the Dharma. Um, so some of these words, right, like Dharma, uh, Buddha, for instance, for Buddha, for example, has a very simple translation. Uh, Buddha doesn't mean God or it doesn't mean um, divine being. 
Buddha means simply one who is awakened to the truth. Uh, one who is awakened to um, the can, who is awakened and sees things, sees everything for what the, for what it really is. And so, uh, you know, these words actually have uh, very simple translations but very deep meanings. So let's move on to karma. Right, karma is used so much in the United States now, uh, and um, and. Uh, it, I often, and I'm going to say this, it's often used incorrectly. Um, people use karma as a, a sort of like a divine justice sort of thing. Like, ooh, you did that bad thing. Karma's going to come and, and attack you or karma's going to, or karma's the B word, right? You know, like people, people, <laughs> yeah, yeah you've, you've heard that before, right? You know, and it's incorrect. And that's because um, karma doesn't, uh, is not, you know, and again, another simple translation. Right. Simple translation of karma is cause and effect, right? Cause and effect. But the meaning is so deep. I'm sorry. Were you going to ask me something about that? Or uh... oh no, I wasn't. I was just I was just hanging out by the microphone. Just yeah, keep, keep going. This is super fascinating. Yeah, no problem. So karma, right, just means cause. I mean, simply can mean cause and effect. The you know that. So the translation is easy, but the understanding is very difficult. So, um, first thing. In, in traditional old Buddhism, this still goes with the logic of like the idea of rebirth or reincarnation, right? And the actions that you do in this life will also affect the actions that, you know, occur in your next life. And the previous actions in your life also, the, I mean, the previous, uh, the previous actions you did in previous lives also affect the outcome of what's happening here. But it shouldn't be looked at necessarily as... Um, it shouldn't be looked at necessarily as a uh, um, uh, like this divine justice thing. Like we're all being judged. It simply means cause and effect, right? There's in a sense, sort of like you could say an order to the system. Um, now, if, like let's, let's look, for example, this is just is just a receipt. Okay, I just tore it in two, right? Now, when I did that. Uh, there's a couple things that could have happened, right? Number one, um, negatively, right? Negatively speaking, it could mean that I was angry and I was so upset and I tore this thing in two to vent my frustration. So this thing acted as sort of a, a sort of a thing for my frustration. However, in another in another sense, I I tore this thing in two. I just I now have two pieces of paper instead of one. So you know, again, karma just. Karma just means cause and effect, right? And uh, and and you know when I if someone is harmed, right, or if I harm someone, uh, it you know there is a there is a cause and effect to that, right? When um, I or like if I am distracted and I drop a glass, right, like the, the the glass broke, right? I was distracted and the glass broke. You know it it can be very simple. But actually, now where it gets complicated is like this spider web of, of like, of choices, actions, consequences that occur because of the choices that we make, right? So, for example, you chose to do this podcast today, and uh, that means that the time that we're doing this podcast, you had to sacrifice something else. Right, you didn't get to play video games for this. You didn't get to do this other homework assignment. You're you're on here talking to me, right? So cause and effect. It's like okay, you know, sure, you are able to talk to me, and whether you think that's a positive or a negative, that's up to you. But then it's like, yeah, but then you have less time to play your video games, right? So there's the cause and effect there. So um, that's actually sort of on a. Uh, here and now and a on and on a like this is what's happened in this life kind of example it gets really more complicated when we go into the cosmic and uh sort of like uh cosmology of buddhism it, karma gets really really complicated uh when we get into that samsara um so uh, samsara is the wheel of existence so you all know uh, that rebirth or reincarnation is also sort of a popular terminology that's thrown around in Buddhism. And, uh, and um, so simply speaking, 
there are six realms of existences in Buddhism. The first, is, the, you know, the, the, the realm that you want to be in in Buddhism is the human realm. Uh, because um, um, the human realm is pretty much the only realm where you can really become a Buddha, where you can really appreciate the teachings of Buddhism. They, then the upper realms are, so the human realm is one, then there's the heavenly realm where you are a celestial being. And that really also symbolizes pleasure because um, you're, you know, you're on, you know, you're always on high. There's nothing but good times and there's nothing but uh, wonderful uh, music in the air. And there's wonderful, like, um, you know, food to eat all the time, wonderful drink, you know, you're in this heavenly place. Then the third realm is the, the, the fighting deity realm, the Titan realm. And that is, uh, the, the, you're kind of like this like uh, demigod thing and um, you can sort of, but you're always competing with the, um, you're always sort of competing with the, uh, the heavenly realms. Then the lower realms, then the animal realm is the realm that uh, pretty much only acting on instinct, right? You know, animals, you know, live, don't have, uh, I mean, it's arguable, of course, we can say animals could, animals could have complex thought, but, um, you know, largely, right, animals, in a sense, kind of go on their instinct and on uh, their sort of their base, their base functions, right, to eat, to find shelters, to survive, which is what we do as well, but, you know, we're a little more complicated as humans. Um, then the third, and then the uh, fifth realm is the realm of the hungry ghosts. This one represents uh, sort of ultimate desire where you never get what you want because in this realm, it's depicted as you are this fat uh, ghost with this big belly, but these tiny little mouth and, and there's nothing but a beautiful spread of food around you. And um, each time you bring the food to your mouth, um, it turns, it bursts into flame and becomes ash. So uh, there's that. And then finally, there's the hell realms where, you know, there's a lot of torturing and a lot, you know, you're split up and, you know, all that stuff, all the matching. It sounds almost like the Christian hell, frankly. The only difference is, is that you don't stay in these realms forever, right? Whereas like in Abrahamic religions, where when you go to heaven or hell, you know, that's kind of for all eternity. Um, in, in, in the realm of Buddhism, uh, the eternity part is sort of the realm of the six existences. So it's like, you're going to keep going on that realm of existence and keep, keep spiraling through all of that. And, um, until right, you reach, and now we come to the next term Nirvana, right? Nirvana, um, uh, you know, literally translated is like to snuff out. And it's almost like they, they, they equate that with the blowing out of a candle, Right, you know, and that's when you extinguish your your self your self centered ego, your, your self centered desires and passions, and th then once that happens, when you become a Buddha, when you become Nirvana, when you reach that enlightenment, you go off of the karmic wheel. So the you know you're, you're no longer in in that cycle of birth and death, and um and so that's what Nirvana really means. Um, it's not Nirvana is not really a heaven. It's a state of being. That um, that actually ensures that we no longer are cycle through the six realms of existence. So there's there there's a there's there's my long-winded explanation of a lot of those uh, terminologies. I see the time left that we only have seven minutes left and everything like that. So I just want to make sure that we're keeping well on time here. So. Uh, all right. So could you tell us a little bit about the Eightfold Path? Because I've heard it's kind of like a path of enlightenment, but could you kind of explain how it works and everything? Well, uh, I, I definitely will. And uh, well, I didn't know there was three of you there. Hi, Rylan. Nice to meet you. Yeah. yeah. Hello. Sorry. Uh, no worries. So, um, so before I talk about the Eightfold Path, I actually have to talk about the Four Noble Truths. Um, you probably have heard of those. Uh, so the Four Noble Truths are... Um, uh, the sort of what's considered to be the first teaching of the Buddha. So, or the, the when the Buddha first uh, talks about, or, you know, first um, encounters his followers again, and he gives his first lesson, he talks about the Four Noble Truths. And the Eightfold Path is actually the fourth truth. So before we got, get to that, we have to talk about the first three. So the first, the first truth, right, is that existence is hard. Um, and um, it's often translated as to life is suffering. I don't like this translation all that much because um, 
it, it, you know, especially in today's in today's society, and when we hear that, or if we if 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 we hear that, we're yeah, we're going to be like, why would I want to join this religion? <laughs> right? You know, our first the first truth is that life is suffering. But you know what? <laughs> there is a truth to that. So let's talk about that, right? The first the first noble truth: life is suffering. Or I, I like you know, life is hard. Or life, you know, there is suffering in life, right? Uh, we all want things. You three want things. I want things. Everybody else wants things. The people outside want things. We all want things. Uh, the three of you want things too, and uh, you're probably um, you probably want different things. Um, simple. Uh, maybe I, I I don't. I've never heard of a high school person who doesn't like pizza. I'm certain they exist, but you probably all <laughs> like you probably all like pizza, right? Yeah. <laughs> but then you probably get into an argument about what toppings you want on it. So then what ends up happening, right, is so that and this is where this is comes to the second truth, right? So so the first truth so the first truth is that there is suffering in life, right? Um and the, the second truth is that there is a cause for the suffering, and that is your own self-centered egos and desires and me and me first attitude. And everybody has this. Everybody, you know, you know, you all you all have this, and because of this, right, it's hard for a lot of us to live in harmony. Um so, like I said, like bring up the pizza argument, right? Now, maybe we can agree that we all like pizza, but then maybe uh, uh, maybe Xavier wants uh, w- wants uh, pepperoni on it, but uh, Noah says, "No, I hate pepperoni. I want sausage," right? Or maybe it's like you know, or, and then uh, maybe Rylan says, "No, I you know, but yeah, but no, but I'm a vegetarian. I can't eat meat, right?" And I don't know. I mean, he actually is vegan. That's crazy. <laughs> That's crazy. Oh, my gosh. So then what ends up happening, right, is that there's this argument that breaks out. We can't come to an agreement. And so um, and this is what causes the suffering, right? This is what causes the suffering. And then the third truth is that don't worry, there is a cessation of the suffering. There is a way to end the suffering. And then the fourth truth is how to do that. So let's talk about so let's talk about let's talk about how to do that. Uh, I'm going to I have the chat here. (laughs) Um, so this is a, this is a, um, if you look in the chat, this is a, <laughs> this is a, um, uh, this is sort of a, uh, an acronym we call VT Sklem. And this is when, when I teach the Sunday school kids, I try to teach them this, this, uh, um, acronym. Um, and I know it doesn't, I know it doesn't say anything, but let's, let's talk about the first April path, right? And right view okay there's right view and then this is our viewpoint uh, this is sort of our general viewpoint on things you know you know this is our our you know our view on thing and then of course you know this comes you know depending on the buddhist school that you belong to you know this could be your view on life itself or your view on humanity or and and of course the view that you know i don't want to harm i want to cause as little harm as possible and then right thought we all have thoughts, you know, we all have these inner thoughts and, you know, usually our thoughts are, how can I win at this competition or <laughs> how can I beat the other guy or, or, you know, or how can I get this person to like me? Right. You know, yeah. but really what our right thoughts should be is, you know, what, you know, how can I help people? What can I do to benefit others, right? We always, you know, we should always have th- those thoughts in our head instead of like, what can I do to win? You know, what can I do to, you know, what can I do to beat the other person? The next one is right speech. Okay, right speech. So when we, obviously in this current uh, political climate and current uh, time of pandemic, we're seeing, yeah. we're seeing a lot of not nice speech happening and um, a lot of, a lot of people saying not very nice things about each other. When we talk, right, uh, it's important we say words of kindness. It's important that we say words that aren't going to destroy a person, but help a person. You know, and then, you know, and then, of course, you know, everyone knows that famous quote by the Dalai Lama, right, that, oh, you know, like when you're, when you're, when you're talking, you're, you're, you're saying something you already know. When you listen, you may learn something new. So, you know, but right speech, right? You know, do our words have kindness? Do our words have, uh, do, do our words help people, right? Right, oh, sorry, right conduct, right? 
right conduct means right action or you know uh you know like doing you know basically right things that we uh do so um you know it, you know so you know uh driving your car really fast and trying to hit a mailbox off of its hinge probably not such a nice thing to do uh or um you know, pretty much anything Bart Simpson does, you know, it's probably not the right conduct and everything. But again, you know, we're, when we're when we're younger, we you know we're more impulsive, um, and then this brings us into right life, um, right livelihood, right? You know how we live our lives, right? What you know, like, and so I guess I I have a I sort of have. I, I don't know, I don't want to say a unique view on this, but frankly, I say more like trying our best not to be hypocrites. Um, when we criticize others and we are so, and we point out the demons in others, and then we kind of go and do the same thing, right? We're not really living our lives the way that we, that way that we said, the way that we hold up to other, uh, other people's standards as well. So, and then the next one is right effort, okay? So that that this one's I think is really important, right? Effort or energy. So obviously we've all done this before. We've um, and excuse me for saying, but we've BS on essays. We have, you know, <laughs> we have you know try. We've done the thing where we've written essays and we've you know made the margins as you know little as possible so we can make more pages or make the text just a little point five a little bit bigger so it fills more pages. It looks like it's and teachers see this all the time. By the way, don't think you're don't think you're gonna fool your teachers yeah the teachers always know so um so the effort right the effort we put into the study like when we write a paper and we've done no research right it's a it's going to be a really crappy paper uh, excuse my french but it's going to be a really bad paper <laughs> no that's good um, that's fine <laughs> um you know and and that's the thing see i lost the point there for right speech i shouldn't i shouldn't swear i shouldn't swear either but that's a point like but that's my thing right is that right effort right you know the you know it's not it's not important just to resolve to do these things you actually actually you actually have to put the effort and the energy into it right and then Mine, uh, here's here's one that you all probably is probably right. Mindfulness. You've probably heard this term. This is another term, right? Mindfulness, right? That you, that you know, that's you know, that you've probably heard this term being tossed around when we people talk about Buddhism and everything like that, um, right? Mindfulness. Uh, you know, but that's the thing, right? Being mindful of all of the actions and the consequences that your actions will have, right? All the the consequences and the other and the causes and effects that your actions will have. Right. Some, and if, I, I would almost, I would almost say that mindfulness sort of uh, stops us from always being so impulsive all the time. Uh, you know, stops us from like, like having just a gut reaction. Something happens to you. You get, I mean, like you know, I mean, sorry for an extreme example, but you get punched in the face, right? Uh, you know, your natural reaction is, I'm going to punch you back, right? Um, you know, again, like mindfulness stops us from doing that. Um, and and then mindfulness also. Uh, is there for us when we are trying to figure out like the next stages of our life as well, and so um, that's the uh, that's the next part. And then finally, right the uh, uh, the last one is right meditation, and right meditation. Um, again, the the problem is is meditation is a very very uh, loose word in the United States right now. It can mean many things to many different people. <laughs> Often when you think of meditation, you think of those, uh, pictures you see of those Buddhist monks in the mountains sitting on a rock and, you know, in this perfect <clears throat> Samadhi meditation kind of, uh, setup. Um, that's not just what meditation is. Meditation can also mean concentration, right? So the concentration that you put into the task that you do and the concentration in, you know, and the and the mental energy that you spend, you know, actually, do you know, actually, um, you know, actually, in a sense, uh, uh, like when a baseball player actually, you know, uh, does whatever ritual that they need to do in order to, you know, get themselves in the best mindset to, you know, hit a home run or to, you know, or to pitch, or you know, or to pitch like a perfect game, whatever. Um, that's what meditation can be too. So those, that's the eightfold path, right there. Wow, and like there, there was some uh, terminology that that reminded me of the threefold path of Asha and uh, Zoroastrianism because there's like right thought, right speech, and right action. So like, yeah, but like this one was like obviously um, uh, more complex. And then like when you said um, and like similarly to the to the Buddhist and Dharmic terms, like when you have a word, there's a lot more that that meets it than just saying 
mindfulness and how you talk about meditation being concentration. So I thought that was something that was really fascinating. Maybe Noah could ask a question now, and then we could go over to Balin if that's good. Sure, I'd love to. Um, uh, if any, um, what scriptures are used uh, within Buddhism? scriptures wow okay um i like this okay so let's talk a little bit about um and i'm certain you've heard this word before now and there, there's two uh languages now where we um where but well there's chinese as well but um when we chant uh there, there, so bleh, sorry so the first uh the, in the um so the first language we're talking about here is Pali, right you know um you've heard Pali. Uh, there's, um, and, and Pali is a language that has, that was, uh, that was used to write what we call the, the, the Buddha or the Pali Canon. And that is a, the Pali Canon is a, um, as a, is a canon, a canonical text of suttas. Now in Pali, it's, they're referred to as suttas and in Sanskrit, they're referred to as sutras. Okay. Um, and these are uh, written down just, um, uh, sermons of the Buddha. Okay. Now, um, uh, I can say now that the Mahayana, uh, now there's, of course, two schools, or the, you know, there's two main schools of thought. Um, I don't like using, I don't like uh, 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 dichotomizing, but there's Theravada and then Mahayana. I don't like to put those two necessarily like as like two different things, but um, the Theravada monks from like, uh, you get like Theravada monks from uh, Sri Lanka, Thailand, Burma or Myanmar and Cambodia and Laos. And then uh, then for uh, like places like China uh, and uh, Korea, Japan, they're more Mahayana Buddhists, uh, you could say. Uh, anyways, so all of these schools use different uh, use different uh, scriptures or different sutras, you could say, that base their teachings off of, or that that basically they base their teachings off of. Um, and these sutras are sermons given by the Buddha. So all of most sutras um, start with a phrase that says, "Thus have I heard," or "I have heard," or "Thus I have uh, I have heard." And then the legend goes that Ananda, uh, this was the Buddha's uh, uh, nephew. This was the Buddha's nephew. And um, uh, it, it was said that he was one of the last disciples of the Buddha to reach enlightenment. Um, and uh, it was said that he lived to the first council of, of the, um, the, first, the first council where they actually uh, uh, canonicalized the Buddhist text, and it was said that Ananda memorized them all and was able to recite every single every single um, uh, sermon given by the Buddha by memory. So these are these. That's a sort of uh, short summary of what the sutras or the scriptures are in Buddhism. So it's important to notice. I think same same thing as uh, Jesus and Muhammad. Um, uh, they themselves, or all the prophets, for that matter, they themselves didn't really write anything down, as far as I rem as far as I know. Like it was people who came after them who said uh, they said this or they said this, right? Um, even like even Moses, right? When Moses went up to the uh, up to the mountaintop, it wasn't he who wrote down on the stone tablets; it was God, right? You know, you know. And so the same yeah. thing. All, you know, all these prophets, right? They didn't write down any of their teachings, it, it was either given to them by divinity or it was written after, after their passing. So. Yeah, that's really fascinating because you talked about how they were compiling the, the canon that brought to mind, uh, that actually brought to mind two, um, two things, uh, from other religions from like two Abrahamic religions. Um, it, in Christianity, there was, um, oh man, it was, um, I was going to actually say it was the first council of Nicaea, but I think that's way too late. That was when they talked about this thing called the Arian controversy. But like, um, yeah, like, um, the way that, that the way that like, um, in Christianity it was compiled was like, uh, partially through popular appeal. Like people liked the three, uh, synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And then a uh, John was uh, popular enough to make it within the canon. So, um, it, it does kind of remind me of that. And also like in, in, uh, Islam, uh, I believe it was like the third Caliph, but I could be wrong. He like burned all the other copies of the Quran and said, here you go. This is the one we're going to, we're going to use uh, for now. Although that, that's probably an oversimplification. Um, but like, yeah, that, that just kind of brought to mind that, um, and then also, I was wondering, perhaps uh, Balin could ask a question right now, if that's good. 
Okay, so what is the Buddhist view on reincarnation? And how can you tell if you have lived multiple lives beforehand? Okay, um, thank you very much for asking that question. I have to preface with this. Number one, um, we, I should have prefaced this actually at the very, very beginning of this, is that, remember, I, am a, um, I come from a school of Buddhism called Jodo Shinshu, and we're, well, we can get into that way later. But, um, but I come from a school of, uh, 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 I, mean, I come from a particular school of Buddhism, or I come from the, Maha, I come from the Mahayana tradition of Buddhism. So, um, and then you also have to remember like as time or as the decades or as the hundreds and centuries and even eon uh, of time, you know, the idea and uh, understanding of, of reincarnation or rebirth is a little bit different. I will say this. Uh, so, so you have to, so you have to take what I say as, as, as not like speaking for all of Buddhist Buddhism. So that's the big, that's the first thing. I am only speaking from my school of Buddhism and the way that I was taught. So first off, uh, the idea of rebirth and reincarnation. Um, it, uh, you, some people still take it very, very literally. Some people say, you know, uh, I'm still like, you know, take, you know, it's, it's this, um, you know, it's this thing where I have to keep on living several lifetimes before I am finally awakened and can get off the samsaric wheel. Um, I, one of my good friends is a um, is a uh, Sri Lankan monk, and uh, he and he is very convinced that I was some type of a holy person in a previous life, because you know with the way that I've spoken with him before, and um, and you know just you know I, I actually when I when you see a Sri Lankan monk, it's really important to do this. You know this shows a sign of respect. You know this is a holy person, right? You know you're showing this. So I did that when I first met him, and he said. Wow, he goes. You knew to do that, and he says that means that did it. You know that means that you were this in the previous life, right? So, um, and 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 I I didn't challenge him on that belief. Um, in Mahayana Buddhism, the idea of reincarnation is a little more complicated because we also preach that in Mahayana Buddhism we also preach the concept of no self, anatman. So anatman, right? So in Hinduism, there's the atman, right? You know, and that's your soul essentially that goes through the several lives of reincarnation and everything like that, and goes through all the several, you know. But in Mahayana Buddhism, we brought up this idea of anatman, and it's the the, the idea of the non-self, no self. Um, so, what do I mean by this? Um, in in the easiest way I can put this is that. I have this concept of who I am right now, right? I am Reverend Tadao Koyama of, of the Tacoma Buddhist Temple. And uh, the problem is, is this idea that we have of the self right now, we think that this is who we're gonna have some of that when we are born into the next life. Um, and there's the same thing, this idea of, I can't remember which movie star said it, but she said something like, in a previous life, I was Cleopatra, right? And I'm kind of like, <laughs> it's like, are you sure about that? Right, you know, and, th you know, that's the, right, um, that's the, that's the, you know, I mean, this is, this is sort of the misunderstanding of, 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 I think, of reincarnation people have, is that like, ooh, in a previous life, I might have been this famous person. Um, we have this deluded notion of the self and our own self-importance. Um, again, when we talk about reincarnation or rebirth and everything, um, that also, you know, it can be taken very, very literally or it can be taken very, very figuratively. In my personal view of this, I, I'm, in, I'm a little bit in the middle here because I do believe that there is a sense of transmigration that happens in the, in, in the constant realm of cycle of birth and death. That being said, uh, um, that being said, I don't think like it's this like, hey, like like the movie Soul in um, the movie Soul in uh, uh, Disney, the Pixar movie. You know, I'm, I'm not this unique thing that, you know, gets to, you know, go on a stairway to heaven and then everything like that. So um, so so there's that. But um, uh, so I'm a, I'm a little bit in the middle here. Um, 
but to answer your second part of your question, it, many of the religious texts or the other commentaries or treatises that uh, a lot of these Buddhist scholars have written, many of them have also um, talked about uh, like dreams that they've had of previous lives or um, other things. And frankly, uh, the Buddha, the, the Buddha in some of these sutras would actually talk about a person's previous life. They would say, um, they would say in a previous life, this is what happened. So one of the famous stories of, of rebirth was the, is the, is the, is the um, uh, King Ashoka, who was one of the huge Buddhist patriarchs in India. Yeah. You've heard that name. So, um, so in uh, King Ashoka, uh, um, he uh, basically um, in a previous life, he was this little kid and he uh, gave the Buddha a uh, mud pie like he was making you know he was a kid playing you know you know making mud pies in the mud and he gives the buddha a mud pie and uh i think ananda was actually with the buddha at the time and ananda said well gee he goes that's kind of bad you don't give the buddha mud but and the buddha said yeah but the intention behind it was pure the intention behind it like he was trying to be friendly yes you don't give mud to the buddha but at the same time you know, the intention behind it was actually good. So his rebirth is going to be a little complicated. So what ended up happening was, was that Ashoka was born as this ugly, you know, evil guy who actually was a tyrant um, and um, and ha actually had a torture prison chamber in his, in his castle. And uh, it was actually called Ashoka's Hell. But then um, later on, but then because of his intention, he encountered a Buddhist monk who he tried to kill um, and couldn't do it. Like he tried setting him on fire. That didn't work. It, you know, he was unharmed. He tried to drown him. He just rose up out of the out of the water. Nothing happened. And then Ashoka realized the 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 profundity of Buddhism and became one of the great Buddhist patriarchs who would give who became did a total 180. So um yeah, so there's so there's that story of like rebirth and reincarnation there. I like I like that story that you said uh, about the the kid giving the mud pie to the Buddha. Mm -hmm. um, really, uh, it, it kind of almost reminds me of um, this sort of thing they have in Islam, where um, so you know how they're not allowed to eat pork, right? Mm -hmm. um, if uh, it, it kind of has to do with the intentions thing, it um, it's stated in the Quran, for example, that. Um, if you do eat pork like unintentionally that um it's like not a sin because mm -hmm. um it was not your intention to eat pork so i feel like it's mm -hmm. very similar to that yeah yeah it, yeah it, it yeah again like reincarnation karma the merit that it's brought up it, it's all um all of these things are uh, <laughs> like you know can get very complicated in in the story of buddhism but the 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 um the the concept of reincarnation itself again um can get very complicated once you get into mahayana buddhism because the the one of the core doctrines is the concept of no self right and then um and um and so yeah i don't want to go too much into that but um i it, it, let's let's break away now and see if anyone has any other questions uh for Maybe, uh, I mean, Balin can ask uh, question five down there. And then since uh, Rylan is, is a guy who's, Rylan's very into uh, Taoism, so maybe he could ask uh, uh, the, the next two. Um, so, Balin, you could jump in with that. Number five. Does pantheism, the belief that God is the universe, play a role in Buddhism, or is the universe an illusion? <laughs> oh, wow. Um, okay. Uh so generally speaking, generally speaking, very generally speaking, uh, most Buddhist schools that I know of do not subscribe to the idea that there is a creator deity. That being said, we also don't deny the existence of a creator deity either. I'm not saying, and this doesn't say that, oh yeah, all Buddhists are secretly Christians or secretly Muslim. Um, when the Buddha was asked a question like that, um, he would actually sort of, he would actually sort of not answer it. And he would say, he would actually say, why are you so concerned about where, you know, what's going on in the celestial heavens? You should be concerned about what you're doing right now. Um, and so, uh, so yes and no, so like, no, but it's a no with a but, because it's sort of like, 
you know, to say that like, oh, Buddhists are atheists, right? You know, is I think too simplistic. Um, it's too, it's too, you know, I mean, the idea that, you know, it's like, yes, we don't believe in a creator deity, but we are still very much a religion. We are still very much a religion that it goes on a large, uh, on a large, uh, on, a, on a large basis of faith, <laughs> you know, so, so that should also be, um, that should also be understood. We do necessarily, um, I think we also agree that the Dharma or the world of Buddhist cosmology or that the wheel of the Dharma, right, you know, will turn. And we use this as analogies and metaphors, but also, you know, in a sense, it's like universal law, right? You know, there's like that as well. I don't know if I would equate that to a god necessarily, but um, yeah. And sorry, what was the second part of the question? Oh yeah, so uh, we um, we we were thinking so because um, we'd heard in the past, and I, I guess this it's possible this is mi misinformation that you know uh, some Buddhists were pantheists, so there's like the universe is quote unquote God, but there's also in Hinduism. My understanding of the religion is that the universe is is actually an illusion and um, is an illusion, and I've heard that. Um, Buddhism initially started out as a uh, particular sect, so to speak, of Hinduism, and then became its own religion. So I was wondering if there's still that uh, Hindu concept of the universe being an illusion. Uh, and this is going to be my Buddhist bias, but actually Buddhism came first. Really? That's awesome. <laughs> yeah, Buddhism came first. And if, it, and if actually Hinduism, uh, Hinduism was a religion that was developed later and um, you, 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 it could it, the 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 sort of religion that was around before Buddhism was like the Brahmin, um, like the religions of the Brahmin and like the spiritual holy men and the um, not even Jainism. Jainism didn't get, come there yet, but there, there, like or Vedic, I guess you could say, like the, yeah, Vedic, the Vedic age, Vedic age, and um, but Hinduism actually came a little bit later, and um, they. So they actually had to incorporate themselves within the Buddhist sphere by saying that uh, Buddha is a reincarnation of one of the of one of the uh, Hindu gods. I can't remember which one, um, but you know, you know. So there's that. But uh, is the, uh, the uh, the universe is an illusion? I I actually that's a very interesting question. I don't know. Um, speak responding to Hinduism. I don't know. I don't know enough about Hinduism to uh, respond to that. I will say this: um, We ourselves have a, as 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 imperfect, non-enlightened beings, have an illusion or a delusion of what the universe is or the world around us. We are not enlightened or awakened beings. So yes, the universe is an illusion, but only because it's it's seen it's been it's being seen through our own eyes. So.